Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon, running single and holding down the fort for my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, who is off today. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The U.S. State Department has changed its website, indicating a more hawkish stance on Taiwan. Also, we review NATO's history of courting and supporting fascism and the Biden administration's attempt to restrict the Summit of the Americas to compliant nations. Joining us to discuss this, we have Caleb Maupin. Caleb's a journalist and political analyst. Caleb, welcome back to the show. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. Before we get started, Caleb, uh, let us let people know about your think tank, the CPI, what you're up to and where people can find more out more and be a part of it. Sure. I'm at the Center for Political Innovation, CPIUSA.org. And we're an educational think tank dedicated to cultivating a future beyond capitalism and putting forward policy solutions that would improve the United States and build a better life for working families. There you go. All righty. Your website again? CPIUSA.org. All right. The U.S. government seems high on playing tricks on the Taiwan question lately, according to Global Times. To begin with, the U.S. Department of State removed some terms including Taiwan is part of China and the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence. From its webpage on U.S. relations with Taiwan, almost at the same time, the Pentagon corrected a readout of China's defense ministry in a phone call between Chinese and U.S. defense ministers. Joining us to talk about this, we have Caleb Maupin. Caleb, your thoughts on the Taiwan question? Well, this is a way to insult China, and it is a way to humiliate China and put pressure on China. Uh, The USA made some overtures to China, it appears, to get them on the U.S. side when it came to the conflict in Ukraine. And while, you know, the position of China that they've made clear at the U.N. Security Council and elsewhere is that they do want to de-escalate, they would prefer a solution that would make both sides happy, Uh, They have made clear that they do consider NATO to be responsible for the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, China says that it's NATO that has escalated the situation to the point that it's at. Um, And China is not really interested in helping the USA arrange a global boycott and economic war against Russia. And because of that, uh, the United States is a little bit furious. Uh, They were hoping that they could get China, which is very economically close to Russia, to join them in putting pressure on Russia. And China made clear they have no interest in doing that. And while they are taking a stance that is somewhat neutral, wanting a political solution. Uh, They are emphasizing that they think uh, that basically uh, Russia is not to blame here. It's the United States. And so because of that, we see the United States taking a move um, that is designed to embarrass and insult and threaten China. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party maintains its credibility uh, because of the fact that throughout Chinese history, one of the main ways uh, that China was kept poor is by dividing it. You know, before the Chinese Communist Party came to power, China was one of the poorest countries in the world. Huge amounts of poverty. You read the novels of Pearl Buck. If you look at what was going on before the Chinese Communist Party came to power, China was a deeply poor country. And what the Chinese Communist Party accomplished was they brought China together. They created one China. Uh, You know, Tibet, the Uyghur regions, Hong Kong, all united one China, and then they started economically developing, and they built China into what it is today. And they maintain that Taiwan is part of China and that, that there is one China. And for a long time, the United States recognized Taiwan as the Republic of China, claiming that the government on Taiwan was the representative of all of the Chinese mainland, which you know was pretty insulting to the people who lived not on the island of Taiwan. But then 
the Nixon administration uh, withdrew recognition, and then ultimately with the Carter administration, uh, we had the United States recognizing the government on the mainland as the Chinese government and withdrawing recognition from Taiwan. So that was a huge victory for China. And they said, look, we've made a country, a very powerful country, the United States. We've gotten them to recognize that we are one China. There's one country, one China. Um, and that was a huge victory for China to have a recognition of their sovereignty, a recognition of their unity, um, a recognition of their, of their control over Taiwan and Taiwan being a part of, of China. And so that was considered a very, very important moment for them. So to have the United States go right up to the edge and make it sound like they're full-on withdrawing recognition, and they haven't done it yet. They have not officially recognized the Taiwan government. They have not declared support for Taiwan independence, but they're doing everything short of that. And this is a way to insult China, and it's a way to put pressure on China, because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, if it becomes clear the United States is advocating a Taiwan that is completely separate from the Chinese mainland, it's one thing to have a government on Taiwan you know, that considers itself to be China, but it's a separate government. But if the United States were to actually get to the point where they were recognizing Taiwan to not be part of China, at that point, China would probably, in order to maintain its respectability with its population, feel an obligation to militarily intervene and retake Taiwan for the People's Republic and for the mainland. And uh, that would be a situation which a lot of people would die. And there's lots of U.S. weaponry pouring into Taiwan as we speak. Uh, so this is not a good situation. The United States is, is not taking good moves. And it's, it's kind of petty. I mean, you're threatening to provoke a, a world war almost uh, and create a situation uh, just because, you know, China is a little more neutral uh, on, on Ukraine. It's, it's really not a good move. You know, and here's the thing, Caleb. You, Taiwan is a fraction of the size of Ukraine. It has half the population. Nearly all of the population le- lives on the coast on the Chinese side. They have virtually no military. It's not like the U.S. is pouring weapons in and they could somehow defend themselves, which they can't in any way, shape or form. Their military would fall in hours. They conscript people for like 60 days and barely train them. It's not a militarily able country, a country of 20 million versus a country of $1.4 billion, maybe the richest country in the world. It's absurd. But what we see is the U.S. and Hong Kong inciting violent protests, the U.S. and Ukraine inciting violent protests and pumping it full of weapons. These people seem like they're arsonists going around the world at a time when we're having shortages of baby food, when we're having shortages of the basics and people here can't survive. It seems like our country is, let me be blunt, is run by lunatics. Caleb. Sure. And the, the, the willingness to needlessly throw the lives away. I mean, Ukraine is a very, very small country in comparison to Russia. But our leaders were so determined to fight Russia, uh, they provoked a situation where Russia felt they had to militarily intervene. And now Ukrainian lives are being thrown away. Um, and, you know, on top of that, now it looks like they see the lives of the people in Taiwan is the same way. Right. They're angry at China. Uh, And so they're looking to see if they can provoke a situation that could result in a lot of people in Taiwan losing their lives, you know, and and just like, uh, you know, Ukraine compared to Russia, Taiwan compared to China. These are not situations where it's like, you know, it's like these countries could win. These are situations where the United States could provoke kind of a long term conflict. It reminds you of how uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski said with Afghanistan that the goal was to, to give the Soviet Union their Vietnam with the Afghan trap, you know. Get the Soviet Union bogged down in a long-term military engagement. How many Afghans died uh, because of that strategy the United States had? Uh, which you know, I mean, and and it's like 
the USA then always claims it cares about the people of these countries. But if you're provoking a conflict, you know, in, in, in such a place, and you're creating a conflict and people are going to die and you're keeping it going as long as you can, pumping weapons and money into there, at the end of the day, you have to ask, do they really care about these people? And the answer is no. They just care about, about fighting their major geopolitical rivals, Russia and China. What's interesting is that the initial argument with Ukraine was it's an independent country, it's a di- democracy, and they can choose their own alliances, right? But now we have members of Congress saying, yes, Ukraine is a proxy war with Russia. Well, wait a minute. Aren't those two things fundamentally contradictory to say this is an independent democratic country on its own, but we're using them in a proxy war with another country? I see a major contradiction uh, here, Caleb. Oh, absolutely. And uh, at the end of the day, Ukraine lost its political independence in 2014 when the United States toppled the elected president, Yanukovych and installed a fanatically anti-Russian government. And since then, the people of the eastern regions of the country that historically voted for the Communist Party and the Party of Regions, they were disenfranchised and not really allowed to be part of the political process. And Ukraine has basically just been an outpost of, of U.S. influence and U.S. hegemony right on Russia's border. And, uh, and Russia has tried their best to de-escalate the situation, to let the people in the eastern regions come back into the government. But the United States uh, wouldn't let that happen. And as much as Zelensky was elected on a peace platform of, of bringing the country back together, he wasn't allowed to carry it out. And now we have the situation that we're facing today. And uh, the United States seems to, again, just kind of want to be waging these long-term kind of proxy wars against their major superpowers, Russia and China. And it's, it's again, it shows they don't really care. You know, if you look at Africa, throughout the Cold War, so many African countries, Ethiopia, Angola, were plagued by these kinds of wars. You know, in Angola, the USA funded UNITA, uh, you know, to, to terrorize the MPLA. Um, and in, in Ethiopia, at first, uh, the United States was, uh, was supporting, you know, the, the government of Haile Selassie. But then when the government of Haile Selassie fell, uh, they began supporting Eritrean separatist groups that were trying to overthrow the Derg and Mengistu. And, you know, the body count, if you add up all these proxy wars the United States has waged, these kind of frozen conflicts, they call them, where the the killing just keeps going on. No side is really going to win. There's just going to be an ongoing standoff uh, with weapons pouring in from one side or the other. Uh, If you look at the body count, I mean, so many lives have been needlessly lost in this kind of geopolitical game that at the end of the day, it doesn't really serve any purpose than the USA trying to stay at the top of the world and make sure that Russia and China don't emerge as competitors on the global market. Tim Anderson in uh, Orinoco Tribune has a an interesting article, NATO's fascist history. In recent years, essentially the USA and Western Europe has bared its fascist roots through multiple inter- interventions across four continents. Caleb, what, are your, what do you know about the fascist history of NATO? Well, that's very interesting. I mean, after the Second World War, many of the people who collaborated with the Nazis, the Greek monarchy, uh, many of the, you know, the pro-fascist forces were recruited by the United States. Uh, you could talk about Operation Paperclip and the Galen Organization. Uh, you know, the Shah of Iran, uh, who had been a sympathizer with the Nazis, was put back on the throne in a coup by the United States in 1953. You know, Iran had had a democratically elected leader after the Second World War, but then they, they reinstalled the, the monarchy of the Shah, who had been a Nazi sympathizer. And really all over the world, after the Second World War, uh, when the United States pivoted from fighting the Nazis to fighting the Soviet Union, the USA began to strategically align itself uh, with various uh, fascist forces around the world. Um, and that's pretty well documented. Um, and it's particularly weird 
because right now Joe Biden is really in this, you know, if you watched his, his speeches, he's really into this, you know, anti-fascist ra- racial awareness, overcoming the legacy of white supremacy stuff. Well, U.S. foreign policy is still tied up with all of these groups. And what's also quite interesting is a lot of these groups that the United States propped up around the world in various countries to fight the Soviet Union and now continues to prop up to, to move against Iran or against, against Russia or China, a lot of those groups are blatantly supporting Trump. And the January 6th Capitol riot included a lot of the, you know, the Falun Gong uh, religious group from China that is trying to overthrow the Chinese government, that opposes interracial marriage, uh, that says that one, that one of the main crimes of the Chinese Communist Party is letting women vote. Uh, that, that that shows that, that China is getting away from its traditional authoritarian patriarchal roots. Uh, you know, they were a big part of it. Uh, the the uh, the religious cult, the Unification Church, uh, started by the Reverend Sun Young Moon that owns the Washington Times. I believe Sean Moon, Reverend Sun Young Moon's son, was among the protesters on January 6th. He was there himself. And this is a group that were big supporters of Donald Trump, but they were big assets of the United States. Uh, in Korea, uh, you know, and have been pushing, you know, U.S. support and, and trying to push, you know, for U.S. support in, in, in South Korea for a long time. They're tied in with American intelligence. They're also tied in with the World Anti-Communist League, which was based on the island of Taiwan, uh, which was uh, the main way that money was funneled throughout South and Central America to anti-communist groups like the Contras of Nicaragua. Uh, so you have many situations around the world where the United States has aligned with these kind of fascistic openly fascistic, admiring Hitler, racial separatist kind of organizations. Then you have Joe Biden talking about how, you know, the United States is woke and we're getting over that. And then on top of that, you have those very groups that the United States has has cultivated and armed around the world coming to the United States and siding with Donald Trump in his Capitol riot. So this is a really confusing situation where the United States is trying to say, oh, look, we're having this woke anti-fascist makeover. They're still arming fascists around the world. Those very fascists that they're arming are causing problems in U.S. politics. It's all just a big mess, and it reveals a huge amount of hypocrisy on the part of U.S. leaders. Another interesting article, uh, and this is a little closer to home, Venezuela analysis, Summit of the Americas in Danger as Caribbean States Threaten Boycott Over Cuba and Venezuela Exclusion. Um, The upcoming Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles is poised to become a diplomatic liability for President Joe Biden as the Caribbean Community Alliance threatened to boycott the event over efforts by the host nation to exclude Cuba and Venezuela and and also, uh, 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 I believe, Nicaragua. But we also now... Here, the president of Mexico saying he won't come. Even Bolsonaro, under pressure from uh, being uh, probably 30 points behind Lula da Silva, he's saying he's not going to come. It's beginning to be um, a Juan Guaido level embarrassment for the for the Biden administration. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, it started out with, you know, just the straight up allies of Venezuela and Cuba saying that they wouldn't attend. Right. Um, But then from there, it got to be some other countries now saying, you know what? Yeah, you know, maybe maybe we are friendly with the United States, but we're still here uh, and, and on South America. We're still on the continent, and we're still here in Central America. And you know, we do business, and we ought to have a relationship. And if they're if they're having a summit of the Americas, but not inviting these major countries, um, maybe we ought to make a point that they can't do that. And that you know, if the USA can just you know do what they've done to Cuba and Venezuela, and just kind of try to just wipe them out economically and just economically demolish them with economic warfare and not acknowledge their existence as countries simply because of their political decisions and their their efforts to transform their economies with socialism, they could do that to us. And I think that some of these countries are not even thinking in in terms of anti-imperialism or socialism or anything like that. They're just thinking like, look, we're a country 
And if they can do it to them, they can do it to us. And we're also going to have to do business with Venezuela. We're going to have to do business with Cuba. We're going to have to do business with Nicaragua. Uh, they're there, whether we like them or not. So maybe this move by the United States deserves to be rebuffed. Um, and so this is a pretty big moment because it shows that the power dynamics are changing. Uh, that uh, that in, in, in South and Central America, in the Caribbean, uh, there is a feeling that just because the United States puts somebody on their no-good list, uh, that doesn't mean that all these countries have to do the same thing and that they may actually decide to take a move to say, look, you're not going to do that. We don't consider you to have that right. The Monroe Doctrine uh, is null and void. You don't have the right to pick what governments on this continent are legit and which ones aren't. A couple of things together. Oil from Iran is soon to arrive in Venezuela and Nicaragua. Argentina will attend the BRICS summit at China's invitation in a step towards formal entry. And Cuba just received 19,500 tons of wheat free of charge from Russia to address their economic issues. Your thoughts on the integration of an anti-imperialist bloc that seems to be a worldwide with major um, powerful countries helping some of the countries that are in development. Caleb. Well, there, there is an alternative economy emerging in the world today uh, with, you know, with Russia and China, with the Eurasian Economic Union, with the One Belt, One Road Initiative, uh, with BRICS, etc. And that economy is very vibrant, and a lot of countries are rising up from poverty. Uh, and at the same time that that's happening, I think the main factor in the, the recent developments you just listed there is the fact that, uh, that what has happened right at the moment is that in the name of fighting Russia and China, uh, it seems the Western countries, the NATO countries, are crashing their own economy uh, right now. Uh, you know, you have Joe Biden driving up the oil prices, uh, driving up the price of food. Uh, you have a situation where we're in, a, in a couple months, the food situation is going to get a lot more serious with droughts and wildfires predicted over the summer in a number of farming states. And we've got a situation where, in the name of fighting Russia and China, the Western economy is kind of coming to a grinding halt. Uh, and and uh, living standards are dropping, uh, you know, inflation is, is through the roof. And, you know, we were coming out of the pandemic. Many people were hoping the economy would get better. And it seems like the world leaders uh, decided, no, let's, you know, provoke a confrontation with Russia. And that confrontation will create more economic turmoil uh, in, in the Western countries. And uh, it seems like so a lot of countries are saying, OK, so if the Western economy is in shambles, and not going anywhere soon, but Russia and China are, you know, surging on ahead. Uh, maybe we ought to do business with them, and maybe we ought to explore what other options are. How much longer is the West going to be crashing its own economy? At the end of the day, you can understand both global politics and domestic politics in the United States in terms of uh, monopolism. You know, when you have a big monopoly, uh, they tend to thrive, right? When, when you have a, a storm, uh, the big fish, uh, they, they survive, the little fish go under. And so you have the big monopolies like Amazon and Walmart and the big oil companies saying, let's create the biggest storm we can possibly create so that all of our competitors go under and we can emerge, you know, when the dust clears, we can emerge as the major big fish, as the major players with no real competition. Um, and this big middle class the United States has had with a lot of lower level capitalists, a lot of lower level millionaires uh, who aren't part of the elite club, you know, but are but exist, you know, and are making money. Hotel chain owners, fracking companies, you know, there's a lot of lower level elites in the United States. Uh, the idea is to just kind of write them out of the economy, demolish them and absorb everything for the big monopoly. And that's happening on the global stage as well. Uh, the ultra monopolies are trying to seize power. So there you go. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. We've been talking with Caleb Maupin. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The Biden administration is attempting to continue their aggressive behavior towards China as the Ukraine crisis threatens to spiral out of control. Also, a controversial bill to give $40 billion to the Ukraine war effort is stalled and a new world economic order seems to be coming into vision. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, a historian and a researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. First article we're covering says U.S. is having trouble finding Asian countries willing to shoot missiles at China. What was supposed to be a satirical headline is actually just an instance of saying the quiet part out loud. And I think their troubles have uh, increased with the uh, election of uh, one uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. in the Philippines. That's certainly an interesting uh, turn of events. Do- uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts on what's happening in the, uh, as they say in the Pentagon, the Indo-Pacific area. Well, it's apparent that Mr. Biden has maneuvered himself and the class that he represents into a kind of quagmire. What I mean is that it was not so long ago, during the Obama-Biden year, from 2008 to 2016, that we were told emphatically that there should be a pivot towards Asia. Mr. Trump took up that clarion call and slapped sanctions up on China, which is what they meant by the pivot towards Asia. China's the ball game. China's the big enchilada. And yet we find U.S. imperialism being bogged down in Ukraine. Indeed, in their attempt to create a new Afghanistan for Moscow, not unlike what happened in the 1980s with regard to the Soviet Union, when U.S. imperialism aligned with religious zealots uh, in Kabul, Afghanistan, apparently what's happening is that quicksand is being created for U.S. imperialism, not being agile enough to pivot towards Asia and fight in Central and Eastern Europe at the same time. And so therefore, this week, you saw the meeting at the White House of ASEAN leaders, Association of Southeast Asian Nation leaders. On May 24th, you'll see Mr. Biden taking off, throwing caution to the winds and jetting to Japan and probably South Korea as well in order to firm up this uh, anti-China alliance. And at the same time, uh, you see this very disturbing quote in the Washington Post a few days ago by Japan's defense minister, Kishi, uh, who suggested that, yes, there is a linkage between Ukraine and Taiwan. There is a linkage between conflict with Russia on the one hand and China on the other. Insofar as the Ukraine crisis, he suggested, in many ways is a dress rehearsal for a coming and impending crisis with regard to Taiwan. So this so-called satirical headline was more relevant, I'm afraid to say, than the creators intended, which is why it was taken so seriously. Because as you survey the political landscape in the United States, you see that in the all-important race for the U.S. Senate in Ohio, you have two candidates, Republican J.D. Vance of hillbilly elegy fame, turned into a 
minor motion picture uh, starring uh, Glenn Close, as I recall, and the Democrat Tim Ryan. Both have China in the crosshairs. Both are suggesting that the problem with the Rust Belt in Ohio was that an uncaring, unthinking ruling elite shipped jobs across the Pacific helping to buff up the Chinese economy. What they don't tell their constituents is that, yes, there were jobs that were shipped across the Pacific, shipped across the Pacific to China, but this is part of a larger Cold War strategy to pay off and buy off the People's Republic of China so that it would turn against Moscow, which it did. And then part of the payoff were, was this massive foreign direct investment. And then China, of course, waged war in Vietnam, which conspicuously uh, had leadership at the White House yesterday as part of the ASEAN meeting. And so part of the problem we see in the United States is that except for rare outlets, such as the one which I'm now addressing, it's difficult for the constituency, for the electorate, to get a grasp upon these complex political and global issues that would help the United States dig itself out of the hole in which it has dug for itself. The issue of the pivot to China in the context of the current economic crisis that we're experiencing, that experience seems to be picking up speed, I think is um, expressed in the opposition to this $40 billion that has passed the House, that's hung up in the Senate, that's uh, in, in, in question, appears to be headed to go through. But we see so much pushback on that from the public um, and from po- even populist movements on the right. So how do the economic, the, the oncoming recession and all of these problems affect the Biden and the neocons' ability to express their militaristic foreign policies in both Ukraine and, and China and the Indo-Pacific? Well, part of the problem the Democrats face is that Mr. Biden and many of the Democrats are pointing the finger of accusation at Moscow with regard to inflation in the United States and rising prices, rising gasoline prices in the first instance. The problem there is that by reminding the electorate of Russia, Mr. Biden is also reminding the electorate that his heatless charge into the battlefield of Ukraine has helped to lead to this conflict, which in turn, Mr. Biden says, is leading to inflation. And so, in some ways, by pointing the finger of accusation at Moscow, Mr. Biden is having three fingers of his own point back at himself. And then that leads us to the other point, which is that if you look at some of the votes in the House with regard to these Ukraine aid packages, you've had virtual unanimity in the Democratic caucus. Indeed, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, uh, who distinguished herself as a dove about 20-odd years ago in the aftermath of the attacks on New York and Washington in September of 2001, was on the delegation of Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Ukraine, has not distinguished herself as, as herself as a dove with regard to this Ukraine crisis, and the same holds true for Senator Bernie Sanders. And so the problem is, that this is going to allow conservatives, perhaps even neoconservatives, to pose as peaceniks. And given the fact that there is a lingering 
amongst the sector of the U.S. electorate for peace, this will be quite the electorate and probably a self-inflicted wound for the Democrats. That is to say, being so far out front with regard to their bellicosity and their belligerence in not only uh, Central and Eastern Europe, but increasingly to Taiwan as well. However, uh, I would call these uh, newly Christian hawks, these reborn hawks in the Democratic Party, to look at the op-ed that appeared in the Financial Times of London this week from Anne-Marie Slaughter, a former State Department under Obama, a former dean at Princeton University. She has broken rank with the Democrats. And this is something that does not necessarily happen with frequency because oftentimes takes it very seriously uh, when you break ranks on such a bedrock issue such as Ukraine. But instead, she's in terms not far distant from what I've just outlined, that the United States not only might be stumbling into a quagmire, but compromising the ability to construct a new security architecture for Europe will put wind in the sails of the left in France, said many times on this program, or geared to do quite well in the parliamentary elections in France in in a few weeks, uh, which could be quite damaging to NATO. Instead, that Prime Minister Boris Johnson of London, who has one foot on a banana peel, has been scurrying back and forth to Scandinavia, encouraging the Finns and the Swedes to sign on, to, uh, which will be quite damaging, ultimately, if they choose to do so, and if they are accepted. I would like to remind the Finnish folk that they should not forget what happened approximately when they were encouraged to wage war against Moscow. And it seemed as if they were doing quite well to begin with. But given the fact that the contemporary population of Finland is about 5 million, perhaps half that 80 years ago, contemporary population of Russia is about 150, 160 million. Uh, perhaps that was a And so eventually numbers begin to tell the story. And Finland barely escaped with this sovereignty. And it seems as if that lesson of history has not been ingested properly. And I'm afraid to say that in terms of lessons of history, the Democrats need more hours in the classroom as well, studying the lessons of history. Uh, not to mention going on an extensive study tour. Well, I will say this about the Democrats. If they think that this abortion issue is upsetting, you wait till the Republicans have enough uh, state uh, governorships and houses to call a a, a constitutional convention, and they will find out (laughs) exactly what kind of problems uh, lie on the horizon. Let me ask you this. I do want to throw this in because you mentioned uh, Europe. I've been reading lately that a number of, I think the, the, the CEO or the head of Bosch has come out, that a number of um, German uh, trade unions, German corporate leaders, et cetera, have, have been 
putting the squeeze on the on 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 uh, Olaf Schultz that they have recently made a statement that said if that if Germany stopped taking Russia's gas. They estimated that the German um, economy would contract by 12 percent in one year. And that may even be a conservative estimate. Your thoughts on how everything that's going on here economically. You mentioned France, but Schultz, I don't think his uh, his uh, his leadership is long for long for this world. Your thoughts on how this economic uh, uh, self-inflicted catastrophe in Europe is going to affect things. Well, speaking of Sergeant Schultz, and TV watchers might know what reference I'm making in using that term for him, uh, he is stumbling, he is bumbling, but sadly, it's not himself alone. Uh, You need only look at his Green Party colleagues, with whom he shares a coalition, who historically, I'm afraid to say, uh, have had uh, more than a scintilla of Russophobia within their ranks. And I think looking at this crisis from 30,000 feet, this is part of the problem. And you can see this by looking at the U.S. left and the pro-war hawks within the U.S. left who are bashing the folks who are against U.S. Uh, increasing involvement in Ukraine. It's basically two wings, ironically enough. And you see this also in Berlin. On the one hand, you have Greens and Social Democrats, to a certain degree Trotskyists, uh, who during the Cold War period were anti-Moscow. And then you have people who were pro-Moscow but feel apologetic about being pro-Moscow during the Cold War and are now doing penance, they think, by becoming anti-Moscow in post-February 24, 2022. And that creates a certain amount of velocity and a certain amount of confusion. And certainly, with regard to velocity, uh, what's going to be happening to many of these European economies is not going to be very pretty. Look at the figures with regard to the shrinkage of the British economy, which, of course, then ties in to the recent vote in Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom, part of Great Britain, where the Sinn Féin uh, party, Uh, which has had historic ties to the Irish Republican Army, uh, came in number one. And they, of course, do not necessarily want to remain in the United Kingdom. Uh, They would like to see a linkage with the Irish Republic, not unlike the Scottish nationalists who lost a referendum a few years ago where they sought to secede from the United Kingdom. And this bespeaks the fact that the current hawkishness that you see in Washington, London, and Berlin, ultimately is going to be a massive self-inflicted wound. And the pity is that those who are inflicting the wound, wound don't seem to realize what they're doing. Do you see uh, Jean uh, uh, Luc Mélenchon becoming the prime minister? And if so, do you think that he will be stained by his association with with with, with Emmanuel Macron? I see Macron recently speaking with Xi Jinping, which appe- which certainly appears that he knows there are some uh, people who want to tamp down the militaristic uh, uh, attitude of the French. Um, what do you think of, about the Mélenchon issue? We've got about three minutes. It's unclear. Of course, if he comes to power, it will be part of a coalition that includes the socialists, 
which have more than an iota of what I would call Macronism within their ranks, that is to say, uh, pro-NATO, uh, not least. And then there are the aforementioned Greens, who are not unlike the Greens in the Federal Republic of, of Germany. However, what we do know about France is that historically in France, there has been more than a bit of skepticism towards U.S. imperialism. You see that to an extent reflected in some of the previous pronouncements of Mr. Macron. The problem is, as we've said before, that French imperialism relies ultimately on U.S. imperialism as a guarantor, not least with regard to the neo-empire of France and West Africa. I would hope, and I underline hope, and I underline the conditional would, that a Melanchon prime ministership would be more skeptical of some of the previous commitments in Paris, that would be a bit more skeptical about relying upon U.S. imperialism as a guarantor for French imperialism. But as you know, even if rhetorically, as of today, you have that left coalition in France speaking in tones not unlike mine, if and when they assume office, they'll be hit by a swirl of contradictions and conflicting forces that can force them to move away from progressive positions. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, a researcher. He's got a number of books. You can go online to anywhere where you can buy books mostly, and they're going to have a number of his. My favorite is the book on Paul Robeson, Dr. Gerald Horn. You listen to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Inflation is at a 40-year high, and the Federal Reserve is threatening to raise interest rates and possibly trigger a recession. Also, a GOP senator is calling for the U.S. to decouple its economy from China, and we discuss U.S. money for the Ukraine crisis. Joining us to discuss these issues, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Yahoo News writes, the Federal Reserve is poised this week to accelerate its most drastic steps in three decades. And I'm going to put this part in air quotes to attack inflation by making it costlier to borrow. I have a feeling, Dr. Tawheed, that's the part we're going to talk about for a car, a home, a business deal, a credit card purchase, all of which will compound Americans' financial strains and likely weaken the economy. So what they're saying is we're going to make it harder for Americans financially. We're going to weaken the economy, and that's going to attack inflation. I see some contradictions there, Dr. Uh, Tawheed, and I'm hoping you'll be able to to clarify this issue and point out if maybe I'm incorrect, I don't know, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. Well, yes. Well, if if inflation is being caused because the, because there's too much money, too much demand uh, for current goods, then raising the interest rate to make it uh, more costly to buy a car or a home 
or for a business to borrow to to uh, increase production, that certainly will decrease demand. Uh, and that's kind of the, 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 the typical way of thinking about inflation among economists and, and therefore among politicians, is that demand is too high. And so you have, for example, those who are saying that, uh, you know, when we were recovering from the pandemic, uh, the government was sending out uh, checks to, to American citizens to tie them over the, uh, the recession, the downturn. And, and then there was, there was too much of that money sent out, and now that demand is causing inflation. Well, if, if that were the case, uh, that there was inflation caused by that, that inflation is over uh, a, a while ago because the, the, that money has run out. People have gone. They've spent that money. They're back to uh, their ordinary budgets if they, if they have work. That inflation would have would have dissipated. And last year, Jerome Powell, the uh, chairman of the Federal Federal Reserve, uh, indicated, well, he was thinking that the inflation would be transitory, and so they did not increase interest rates to slow down the economy last year. But that's not the only thing that's fueling inflation. Uh, We have supply chain crisis. Uh, We have a decrease in supply of goods or or, uh, goods to purchase because those goods are not, not, one, not coming into the country, uh, and, and two, because uh, our, one of our major producers of those goods, China, is on lockdown. They've been on lockdown a couple of times during uh, the coronavirus pandemic. And so uh, goods that would be, uh, they would be producing are not coming to the U.S. Therefore, there is a supply shortage for those goods. We also have climate crisis which is causing a, a decline in production of agricultural goods. Uh, and so we have a shortfall in the supply of agricultural goods. Uh, now we have sanctions on, on Russia, and Russia is a supplier of oil and gas and grain and, and, and other kinds of, of um, commodities. And so there's a shortfall in the supply of those things as well. So this current inflation is not very much a demand crisis, it is a supply crisis. And so what the Fed is doing is responding to a demand crisis, which is not what it should be doing. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, and, and you know, you've been on recently this week, and we've, we've had some discussions about a, a major question, and that is, if you know that, and now all of our listeners know that, we know that this inflation is caused by supply as opposed to demand, and that the Fed is looking at doing something that can only trigger a recession but still can't address inflation, won't address inflation, and could make it worse with, worse with recession, will certainly make the lives of the average day consumer, a worker, harsher. If we know that Janet Yellen, the Rouses, the Bernsteins of the world, the, the people of the world who are either, you know, should be in the know and are often um, advisors to people in high places, shouldn't they know that too? And how does that affect their ability as an advisor to affect policy? Well, yes, they should know. And I would argue they do know. And the evidence that they do know is uh, comes from last year when the Biden administration was trying to pass its Build Back Better plan. Because Janet Yellen went to Capitol Hill uh, and uh, told Congress, people in Congress, that the inflation that we were just seeing last year, starting last year, would be addressed if they passed the Build Back Better plan, because the Build Back Better plan would increase production and productivity. 
That is, Janet Yellen was arguing that we can fight inflation if we increase supply and that the inflation that we're having is a supply problem as opposed to a demand problem. This is what she argued. And so I say she does know, and that's the evidence that, that she knows and, and, and other economists in the Biden administration know that. The problem is, of course, that the Build Back Better plan did not pass. And if the Democrats could blame it on the Republicans, that would be, you know, uh, ammunition for the, uh, the midterm election. But they can't blame it on the Republicans because it was a Democrat, Bill Manchin, who sabotaged the Build Back Better plan. So they can't they can't use that that tax of, of blaming the, um, the Republicans. So if they can't address supply, the only thing that they can do is to pretend to address the economy, inflation in the economy by using the old tool of having the Fed increase interest rates, which is not going to solve the problem, but it's the only thing that the Democrats and that the Biden administration has uh, to argue. So they, they, they can pretend, if you will, uh, that they're going to address this problem of inflation. Uh, Joe Biden says and fighting inflation is his number one issue. But, but the, 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 the economists who know that this is a supply problem also know that addressing demand is not the way to solve this problem. And in fact, in increasing interest rates will, will not only bring down demand for houses and cars, it will also bring down demand for, for borrowing to expand business. So it's also going to affect supply negatively. So both demand and supply will be affected by interest rate hikes, which, which compresses, contracts the economy leading to a recession and may not have very much of an effect on inflation, but they know, but they they know, but they're they're limited in what they can. Well, they know, but they have to pretend that they're doing something. This kind of reminds me of when the Afghan situation was falling apart, and and I've and I've got this right. I've got, in fact, I brought this up right here, and I'll tell you why. I'll explain it to you. The President then, I think his name was Ash, the, the guy that ended up that ended up um, fleeing the country with uh, 160 million dollars in cash, as puppet leaders tend to do, was talking to President Biden, and President Biden on the phone said the following: "Things aren't going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban." Well, it turns out that was a bit of an understatement. The president had just told him the Taliban is run, they're running overrunning all of our positions at the border, and we're about to get wiped out and lose. So the president calls him and says, "Things aren't going well in terms." of the fight against Taliban. And there's a need. Whether it is true or not, there is a need to project a different picture, Biden told Bre uh, uh, President Ghani. Is, am I wrong in saying this is what that is? They're saying, look, whether we can do anything to address this or not, there's a need to project the picture that we're addressing the economic problems to the American people, even though we're actually going to make their lives a living hell. Yes, uh, there's, there's, there's the, this is about public relations, or as they call it, optics. This is uh, the optics of getting uh, through the next, through the midterm election, hoping that the, um, the inflation fighting, the raising of interest rates by the Fed won't slow the economy down too much uh, and cause a recession uh, by, the, uh, by the midterm elections. And maybe it'll address a little bit of inflation uh, before the recession hits. And so uh, there's, a, there's a timing thing here that uh, if, if the Fed is too aggressive 
and causes too much of a decrease in in the in the economy uh, recession before November, then the Democrats are are sunk even deeper than they were before. Uh, but but if the timing doesn't work out that way, and let's say the recession only hits uh, next year uh, after we're past the, the elections, then then the optics are good for 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 the Democrats, or as as good as they can be uh, for the Democrats for the midterm election. And and so you know you want to keep consumer confidence up, and so you want people to believe that the federal that the uh, the government the Biden administration is doing something to address inflation, which is causing a tremendous problem for everyone. Uh, in the country, but particularly the poor and middle class who are who are your voters, um, majority of the population. And so you need them on board. You need their confidence up. But but I have a feeling that that this is not going to to affect inflation very much. And that, in fact, the economy will, will shrink quicker than than the than the uh, Biden administration is hoping that it will. It sounds to me like that their plan is to do something stupid and then have a lot of hope. And as I have heard it said, hope ain't a plan. Hope's what you do when your plan doesn't work. <laughs> so let's talk about this. That leads to this obvious question, which has to be adjusted. I was going to say, is the U.S. economy heading into a recession? Well, that seems to be a fairly uh, obvious question. Uh, but here's the question. Number one, you know, how soon, how bad, and this is something that we never ask in the past. Can we see a light at the end of the tunnel based on everything that's going on? Can we see, hey, well, we could have an economy, you know, a recession for up to six months or a year. Or are we looking at such structural problems in our economy, the financialization of everything, student loans possibly coming back? I mean, I could go on and on so that we're heading into what could be a structural change in the economy that isn't a recession. It is a new economy. Uh, that don't work so good, Dr. Tawheed? Well, the last time we had a a situation that we're we're going into now where we had inflation uh, was the 1970s, and that inflation was was being caused by the Vietnam War. Um, you, your, 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 popular, your economy is producing products that can't be bought and sold in the supermarket. When you're creating military goods, you're paying people in this economy to create military goods, hardware, uh, but that hardware is being sent over to to Vietnam, and and it, it's not adding another loaf of bread to the shelf. Then the price of bread starts to go up. Well, you had that that inflation, and and then you also had the oil shock, the decrease in in uh, oil production by OPEC, which caused uh, a decline in the economy. So we had what we called stagflation during the 1970s. We had a a financial issue. Um, of of, uh, of de- demand for 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 military goods, but we also had the structural issue in terms of the price of oil. We in, in in this current situation, we have a number of structural issues. We have supply chain crisis, which is being prolonged by by COVID, and particularly with with globalization and and the downturn in production in in Southeast Asia and and China particularly because of their shutdown. We have that as a, as a crisis. We have uh, uh, global finance, uh, global, um, um, uh, the, the climate change crisis that's causing a de- decline in production. We have the, the, uh, the war, the, the, the war in, 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 uh, in Ukraine in which Russia is being sanctioned. And so we have a de- decline in, in that supply. And, and we, we have a number of structural things that the, the U.S. government, in fact, 
cannot address in the short term. You can't turn these things around. And so I, if, if you take all of those into consideration, uh, the recession that we're heading into uh, is, is likely to be a long recession. Now, I wouldn't call it a depression because there's really no official designation for a, a depression. A recession is, is a two-quarter, two consecutive quarter downturn in, in gross domestic product in production. And so we're certainly, I think, going into a recession. Everyone is, 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 is seeing that. How long that recession will last, I think, um, you know, if I, if I had to predict it, I think it'll last for, for quite a while because we have these structural issues that are not going to be uh, dealt with. These are, these are structural issues in supply, and, and no one is, is attempting to address the supply issue. I mean, if we could get a Build Back Better plan <laughs> for past, uh, then that might address the supply issue, uh, it, but it, it, it won't address the, the Ukraine war and sanctions and, and global uh, climate change and production and or supply chains. And so we have those things that not even a Build Back Better plan, an increase in U.S. production, or at least in a, in a, an idea about increasing U.S. production, would be able to address. So, so I think we're we're certainly heading into recession. I think it's likely to be long. That's my that's my estimate. Senator Rand Paul uh, blocks U.S. Senate vote on $40 billion Ukraine aid. Paul wants to add text to the bill to create an inspector general for oversight of the billions being sent to Ukraine. Quote, we cannot save Ukraine by dooming the U.S. economy. A couple of things about that. Number one, he's still saying he wants to give the 40 billion to spend the 40 billion. He's just saying he wants to know where it goes. And the people seem to be quite. I see a lot of pushback uh, all over the uh, ideological spectrum against the $40 billion because we've essentially adopted this money. We're literally going to be paying the pensions of people in Ukraine, paying the soldiers' salaries, paying for health care for the average Ukrainian on the street, which, of course, will all get stolen by the crooked oligarchs in, in, um, in Ukraine. But we have adopted a country and we're providing a social safety net for a country that we don't provide for the United States. Your thoughts on the dynamic? of how the money affects us, what the political ramifications of this? Well, this is, this is the military spending, and, and as we've talked about many times here, there, there, there seems to be no limit to the amount of military spending that this country can, 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 uh, can spend. But when it comes to spending on social programs, then, then it, you know, we're out of money, we can't afford it, and so forth. And so and say Rand Paul, I, I guess, is being consistent in, in one sense, in uh, scrutinizing payments, uh, you know, $40 billion going elsewhere, because he, he certainly scrutinizes $40 billion that would be paid for U.S. Um, 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 uh, social programs. Uh, what he's saying is that he wants the, an auditor to know where this money is going. And I think that, in fact, would be a reasonable thing. That if, if that's not already in place, then, then it certainly should be in place. Because Ukraine is uh, listed as the most corrupt country in Europe, uh, it's expected that the uh, that the, um, the, the organized crime in Ukraine will will siphon off a significant amount of whatever forty billion dollars goes. Uh, organized crime is is involved in intercepting weapons shipments into Ukraine and and is a source of, of weapons markets into Europe. Uh, has been and will continue to be, and so the the support the forty billion dollars, which is not not all in cash but but significant cash 
uh, needs to be audited so that we, we, we know where that money is going. Um, and it is, it's likely to disappear, a significant part of that disappear, and it will not get out to Ukrainian uh, public. And, and, and so the, the common Ukrainian citizen will not be helped by this $40 billion, but the oligarchs and, and organized crime in Ukraine will be helped. Uh, if you put that spotlight on this $40 billion, if you actually have an auditor uh, who is going to keep track of this money, it maybe makes it less desirable to send this amount of money to Ukraine, and perhaps we can send that $40 billion back to, to U.S. citizens uh, for health care and child care and other kinds of things that, that didn't pass and build back better. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Dr. Linwood Tawhid. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The Biden administration is bringing the world closer than ever to the threat of nuclear annihilation. Also, Finland announces its intention to join NATO. The threat of a Polish intervention in Ukraine grows, and Chinese President Xi has spoken with French President Emmanuel Macron regarding bringing an end to the Ukraine conflict. For more on this and other stories, we turn to Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. And the one and only Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq, and he is an author and uh, a man of great knowledge on these issues. Scott Ritter, welcome back. Thanks for having me. A wise man wrote, hats off to Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines for her Senate May 10th testimony on the likelihood of nuclear war with Russia, even though parts of it were surreal, as we discuss. Let's talk to that wise man, Ray McGovern. You can find that on Antiwar.com. The name of the article is U.S. Counting on Putin to Signal Before Using Nukes. Ray, your, your thoughts on, your, on this article. Well, well thanks, Garland. Uh, I've been regularly called a wise guy. Uh, but a wise man, not so much. So I'll take that. Um, this article that I wrote uh, uh, turns a, a couple of uh, hairs on end uh, the back of my neck. Um, we have uh, a decent intelligence report from the two top intelligence uh, officials of our government, uh, Avril Haines, who's the director of national intelligence, and uh, Burns, who's the head of the CIA. And what they talk about here uh, can be neatly felt, uh, fit into a kind of a syllogism. Um, major premise, World War III, nuclear weapons, not a good idea. Minor premise, Putin may use them uh, if he feels he's losing in Ukraine. Well, those are two really important premises, and uh, we, uh, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity and others, agree. Actually, we said that well before Burns and, and Haynes. And now you have a major premise and a minor premise. Well, what's the conclusion, you know? Well, I mean, if your head's screwed on right, <laughs> 
And you agreed that nuclear war is not really a good idea and that you shouldn't really unnecessarily chance it. Well, the conclusion would be something different from what U.S. policy is doing, because what U.S. policy is doing is precisely driving Putin into a corner and making him, as they put it, quote, perceive, end quote, that he's losing in Ukraine. Now, just a footnote here. I don't perceive that he's losing in Ukraine. I think the next couple of weeks will tell a wholly different story. But but this is not, you know, this is nothing to fool around about. These are the these are the premises which are valid. The conclusion could not be more stupid. And, you know, talk about surreal. Last thing I'll say on this is that April Haynes reassures us that uh, uh, the intelligence community believes that Putin will, will give a signal before he, he, he really decides to use nuclear weapons. Huh? That, that's how surreal it's become. Uh, if we think that Putin is going to signal the use of nuclear weapons or even any of the major other steps he's likely to take now with Finland and Sweden uh, uh, lining up like, uh, oh, like those, what do you call those people that go across the, the lemmings, like lemmings, um, then, you know, if they think that they get adequate signals with all communication broken down now between the U.S. and Russia, they have another thing coming, coming in there. Very surreal is what, how I would characterize it. Uh, that's all I'll say on that. You know, Scott, um, all of this discussion of where, when Russia would use nuclear weapons and whether they'd signal, et cetera, et cetera, Russia has a transparent policy on the circumstances in which it will use nuclear weapons. I agree with Scott in that, based on what we're seeing on the ground in um, Ukraine, uh, the Russians are almost sure, which was predictable from the beginning, to achieve their objectives. However, people like Boris Johnson and various people are saying we have to make sure they don't win. We've got to bring in Finland. We've got to continue to escalate. It appears that that tra- that that these people are moving deliberately to push towards the edge where that transparent policy would come into effect. Anyway, Scott, rid of your thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that we um, we acknowledge that Russia has declared a nuclear posture that uh, defines, in, in, in stark terms, open terms, transparent terms, uh, the conditions under which nuclear weapons would be used. And I think it's also important to note that, as we speak, none of those conditions are, uh, are in play. Uh, Russia has repeatedly warned that any direct involvement by NATO in, uh, in the Ukrainian special military operation uh, could lead to an escalation of, uh, of 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 conflict between Russia and NATO that that you know could create the conditions for uh, the use, but again uh, that that presumes that NATO would defeat Russia conventionally and um, move in a direction that would uh, threaten the existential existential survival of Russia. I don't believe NATO is capable of uh, of either. So um, I, I literally, as things. I don't lose too much sleep over Russia using nuclear weapons. You know who I'd like to hear from besides Avril Haines and William Byrne? Because you know what? They don't matter. They don't matter because they live in a fake world. As Ray rightly pointed out, anytime you have an intelligence professional saying that Russia's going to signal its intent to use nuclear weapons, I think there's, there's no doubt that uh, Russia has 
um, I think, published uh, in full transparency its nuclear posture uh, and its nuclear doctrine. And we, we know full well um, the conditions under which Russia would uh, use nuclear weapons. Um, prime, you know, and Russia has cautioned uh, the United States and NATO not to get involved in uh, the special military operation that's unfolding in Ukraine. Uh, noting that any conflict between Russia and NATO could lead to an escalation uh, that that could create the conditions for the use of nuclear weapons release by Russia. But in order for that to happen, uh, one, NATO would have to defeat Russia conventionally uh, and then um, carry out an offensive um, action that threatened Russia from an existential standpoint. I don't believe NATO is capable of either of those, so I don't lose too much sleep over the notion of Russia using nuclear weapons. Um, you know, and, and you, what we don't want to hear from is people like Averill Haynes and William Burns, intelligence officials who lose all credibility when they say ridiculous things such as Russia will signal its intent to use nuclear weapons. You know, when, when, when we sit around and talk about American strategic nuclear posture, you know who doesn't factor in at all? Averill Haynes and William Burns. They're, they're literally out of the room. Because when it comes time to push the button, uh, they're not in the, in, in the chain of command. They're not the decision makers. The people I want to hear from are, is the commander of uh, Strategic Forces Command. Uh, and I want to hear from people in the Pentagon and in the National Security Council who deal with nuclear posture. I want to know why we still have low-yield nuclear weapons on um, Trident submarines. Uh, you know, this, this is the weapon that was... Uh, you know, deployed during the Trump administration, where the Secretary of Defense tested the launch of capability, the launch command and control of these missiles by actually pushing the button that sent the signal to pretend launch a missile in a scenario that had Russian forces engaged with the Baltics in Northern Europe. I mean, these are the people I want to hear from, because if there's going to be a nuclear war, it's not going to be because Russia initiates it. It's going to be because the West has underestimated Russia's you know, intent, Russia's design, Russia's objectives, and overplayed their hand. For instance, allowing Finland and Sweden to enter NATO. All you've done is create a you know, 800-mile additional front with Russia that Russia says represents an existential threat that will be responded with military technical means. This means that Finland will be wiped off the face of the earth. Then NATO will get involved, and then Russia will destroy NATO, destroy Sweden. Uh, Russia will push into Poland, threatening Warsaw, and suddenly you'll have Lloyd Austin faced with the Esper-like situation. Do I push the button authorizing the launch of a low-yield nuclear weapon mounted on an American submarine missile to strike Russian forces that are threatening Warsaw? That's the nightmare scenario. You know, Russia is, is engaged in a small-scale special military operation that may turn into general war and general mobilization. And when Russia generally mobilizes, NATO will not be able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them in a conventional fight. This will create a condition where Russia will strike back, Russia will do damage, and the West will have no other option than to employ nuclear weapons to stop you know, Russia's counterstrike. This is what scares me to death. Not that Vladimir Putin sitting in his bed chewing his fingernails saying, oh, my God, do I have to launch? Do I have to launch? He's not going to launch. 
unless we prompt him to by doing one of the things he said will cause him to launch, one of which is we use nuclear weapons first. We're the ones with the forward-leaning nuclear posture. We're the ones with low-yield nuclear warheads loaded on missiles uh, designed to fire against Russian troops driving on the Baltics. We're the threat, not Putin. That brings me to this article. The leaders of Finland announced Thursday that they plan to apply to join NATO without delay. Russia responded to the Finnish announcement by warning that it would take military technical measures. Quote, Russia will be forced to take retaliatory steps of both military, technical and other nature in order to stop the threats to its national security that emerge as a result, the Russian foreign ministry said, according to TASS. You know, Ray, the last time I heard the Russians say they were going to use military technical measures was in December when they sent a document to the U.S. and said, I will paraphrase, get the crap out of Ukraine, stop turning Ukraine into a military base against us, or we will use military technical measures. I know how to interpret that language. Ray, how do you interpret it? Well, I think uh, there's a word word of caution that needs to be introduced here. Uh, Turkey, within the last couple of hours, has objected to the notion that Sweden or Finland should join NATO. Most people don't realize that it takes an unanimous vote on the part of NATO to uh, not only invite— Let me throw this in. I think Croatia, I believe, has already said no. And I wouldn't be betting on France. (laughs) So, now, these can be tactics. You know, uh, Erdogan of Turkey can always buy him off. So nothing's for sure. But people do lose sight of the fact that it can't be just the United States and, and Boris Johnson, for God's sake. Uh, uh, saying that NATO is going to welcome these people into NATO. I think besides that, uh, the people in Finland particularly, but also in Sweden, have gone berserk. I don't think they realize what nuclear war is. Uh, Some of them are too young to realize what that is. And when they reflect on it, when they talk about, (laughs) when they think about these military technical measures, I think they will have second thoughts. So I don't think it's a done deal that at the end of June, NATO will invite Finland and Sweden in. However, let's posit that they do. Uh, This is a big deal, as as Scott has been saying for weeks now. I mean, Finland, 800-mile border, uh, the Russians are not going to take that kindly. They're going to do something, uh, just as you suggest, Garland, military technical measures of whatever kind. And they have these hypersonic missiles which, as far as I know, are dual capable, meaning they're capable of carrying a nuclear warhead as well. They can easily demonstrate how far they and how fast, Mach 9, give me a break, uh, how fast they can travel and, and reach the inner, the inner parts of Finland or Sweden without any problems. Now, with respect to Putin fearing uh, a strike by the US, well, Scott uh, accurately referred to the need to hear from the head of what we used to call the Strategic Air Command, now it's Stratcom. Uh, His name actually is Admiral Thomas Richards. And we have heard from him, actually. (laughs) About a year ago, he said, yeah, these small nuclear things, yeah, they're really handy. And yeah, you can't rule out that we'll be using them, you know. So put yourself in Putin's place. Uh, Who has charged these missiles? You think Biden? 
I think Richards. What does Putin think? He doesn't know, but he's got to think the worst. Besides that, you have this little guy. What's his name? Another, well, another admiral, Savridis. Yeah, he teaches at some place. Anyhow, he was head of NATO, and now he's saying, "Oh, we'll have to use nuclear probably uh, against China, probably within ten years, maybe five years." I'm a hello. So this is what Putin and Z are facing. Last thing I'll say is that the best book on this, of course, is by Daniel Ellsberg called The Doomsday Machine. And back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was not only Russia that was targeted for obliteration by nuclear weapons, it was China as well. Now, is it the same today? Well, I don't know. I hope not. But can the Chinese be sure? I mean, the Chinese are pretty thick in there supporting uh, Putin. So this thing has a wider ramification. And when we talk about nukes, you should not be as nonchalant as uh, Abril Haynes, the director of national intelligence, who bright as she is, has been persuaded that, as she put it, yeah, I had that, it's, it's so bizarre I had it written down here. Yeah, uh, before, before Putin, quote, would get to a nuclear weapon, he would be likely to engage in some signaling beyond what he has done before, before doing so. Signaling. Well, you know, if, if Finland joins, or, yeah, if Finland joins NATO, Putin has already done enough signaling. I'm not going to say he's going to use a nuclear weapon right off the bat, but they, the Russians, as I think Scott just said, would interpret this as an existential threat, uh, as something they don't have to put up with, given the history of their relationship with the Finns, who, after all, joined the Nazis for the first couple of years of World War II. Most people forget that. The Russians let them off the hook because they didn't want to make a Finnish socialist republic. Uh, they had enough problems on their hands. So they did a deal and they said, in return for letting you exist as a Western nation, you have to remain neutral and you don't do the kinds of things that these dunderheads in charge of Finland now are contemplating doing. Scott, a couple of things here. Um, I live in the state of Maryland. Maryland has about six million people, which is about a half million more than Finland. Okay. You, two articles I'm going to put together. Number one, and this is awesome. I guess Finland's got it made. Britain will provide military assistance to Sweden and Finland if they come under attack, including during their transition to NATO membership, Boris Johnson said. So basically, they got it made because the UK is going to protect them from the mighty Russian army. But we go to another article, which we can find in the, in the Independent. UK's withered armed forces could not protect against an attack by Russia warns their former army chief. If we go back, if we go down a little bit more, we find certain things such as that the apparently the uh, the it says the UK's Air Force is due to introduce 48 F-35 Joint Strike Fighters, the most expensive and advanced combat aircraft in operation. The small pl number of planes, however, means only six aircraft will be operated at a time. So the UK is going to take their six fighters and stand up against the Russian military. I got a feeling this is all BS, Scott. This is absurd. What are we looking at? I, uh, uh, let me stop. Scott Ritter, help me out here. I've lost my mind. 
Well, to put put this in perspective, um, <clears throat> late last year, the uh, British Minister of Defense, Mr. Wallace, visited Croatia and demanded a meeting with the Croatian Prime Minister, who said, "Why would I meet with him? His military is a joke, and they aren't even members of the European Union." So he ignored him. Ignored him. Um, I can guarantee you right now, Russia is losing no sleep over the concept of British military guarantees to either Finland or Sweden. First of all, in what form would they come? You mentioned the F-35. You know, uh, just yesterday, I believe, um, uh, Congressman uh, Garamaldi, I think, from uh, California, um, <laughs> let it be known that he is reading the riot act to the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. and the Pentagon over the F-35. He said, this is a boondoggle that has to come to an end. He said, we're spending billions of dollars, trillions of dollars on an airplane that simply doesn't work. And we know it doesn't work. And there's nothing we can do to make it work. He said, even if uh, the, the few airplanes that can get off the ground, get off the ground, the second their little Pratt & Whitney engines get dirty, they shut down, they don't work, they're useless in combat. So England can send their six F-35s. A, they're not as good as people think they are. They're easily detectable by radar. They're going to be shot out of the skies. But even if Russia just lets them fly circles, when they land, they break, they won't take off again. Um, the best way to shoot down the British Air Force is to let it fly uh, because it will shoot itself down. So this is the reality. England can't get together one armored brigade, not a single armored brigade. Even if they take all 80,000 of their pathetically small little military force and cannibalize everything, they can't get a combat-capable armored brigade off the ground, let alone across the channel, let alone anywhere near the front line. So England is literally the most irrelevant nuclear-powered nation in the world. They have no military worthy of the name. Uh, their aircraft carriers only are aircraft carriers because the United States Marine Corps uh, put the squad F-35B squadrons on board. Um, other than that, they didn't have a carrier wing to fly from. They are a joke. They've cut their military. But it's, literally, they are the living embodiment of all of NATO. Understand that what the British have done to their military, every single NATO member other than the United States, perhaps Turkey, has done to their military. They can't fight anymore. They are a joke. But in defense of the F-35, Scott, I understand the ejector seat works pretty darn well. It's about the only thing on there. And luckily, I think it's made by Toyota. I'm just being a joke, being, uh, making a joke. But at any rate, uh, and I think we got to jump to this because we don't want to miss this. This is important, Ray. The U.K.'s Boris Johnson urges Ukraine not to negotiate with, with Russia. Johnson reportedly told Zelensky, even if Ukraine wants to sign a deal with Putin, the West is not ready. Remember, we were told that the Ukraine is an independent democratic nation that makes its own decisions and it chooses its own alliances. As we see the Russian army turning the Ukrainian army into mulch, and, I, and, and it's a horrible thing to me because generations of, of Ukrainian men, and I do mean generations, because I've seen pictures of some of the guys who look like my grandfather that they got out on the front line, are getting destroyed, injured, killed, everything, and uh, I don't know why. At any rate, Ray McGovern, help me out. 
Well, Garland, uh, the negotiations such as they were, were underway in Turkey, and they seem to be gravitating towards some sort of at least temporary solution. Uh, there was an acknowledgement that uh, Ukraine uh, would in no way anytime soon become a member of NATO. There were other things that were assurances that looked like they were making some progress. All of a sudden, as you point out, Boris Johnson descends on uh, on Ukraine and says, no, 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 you can't do this. Well, my God, uh, does that show you something? Does that show you why it is that this Zelensky uh, can't negotiate it even if he wanted to? He's faced with pressure from the U.S. that doesn't want him to negotiate. He's faced with pressure from the hardline, hard-right neo-Nazis who don't want him to negotiate. He's, he's a great actor, but he's faced with these things, and he can't be his own man. So what does this mean? Well, this means that the U.S., which does have it in its power to stop the carnage. That's big, okay? It does have in its power to stop the carnage, to start these negotiations. Instead of sending satraps like uh, Boris Johnson to, to cut off negotiations, needs to encourage them. And the last thing I'll say on this one is really kind of depressing. Um, Avril Haynes and, well, uh, what's his name? Bill, Bill Burns, the head of CIA, Haynes, the head, head of national intelligence, she overstepped the bounds of intelligence once during her testimony. And she said, well, there can be no negotiations because of blah, 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 blah. There can't be any negotiations. That's not her call. Her call is to tell what the lay of the land is, what Putin wants to achieve, the dangers of uh, his achieving them or not. Her call is not to say whether there be negotiations or not, and she said it. So to the degree that intelligence can be independent of policy, it's always a real tough line to shred. And uh, when she says she repeats pretty much what the U.S. position is, the policy position, uh, she's, over, she's overstepping the bounds of intelligence work. I'm not sure she even realizes it because she's never really worked in intelligence before. But that's the case. Intelligence cannot be uh, dependent upon to be completely objective. It, if it goes off endorsing policies, brutal policies, like the one that prevents negotiations now to stop the carnage. Scott Ritter. And what I see on the line, I see pictures of guys on the front lines now that really don't belong on the front lines. They belong in front of an easy chair watching TV. They are getting their best troops and the, 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 the flower of their youth wiped out in Ukraine. They're not going to be able to continue fighting, even if they get equipment, because all of their trained proper soldiers are going to be gone. This is a horrible thing. They're pretending that the Ukrainians are winning and they're getting literally annihilated. Scott Ritter, your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, that's, that's half true. I mean, one of the big dangers of this conflict is that by, by Russia focusing on the limited objectives of the special military operation, uh, they've provided Ukraine with identifiable strategic depth. This depth didn't exist when Russia carried out its feint against Kiev. At that time, Ukraine was compelled to divert uh, critical uh, reinforcements to, um, to Kiev uh, and also to Odessa. Um, 
But now that Russia has backed off and is focusing solely on phase two, um, Western Ukraine is is has become a um, a, a st- strategic rear area where uh, Ukraine has actually pulled back some of its most capable uh, units to be um, you know to rest, re-equip, retrain, etc. With uh, billions of dollars of Western technology. So the the fact is that um, Ukraine is building up a strategic reserve that uh, it, it plans on using at some point in time. Some of these have been sent to the front lines. Some are operating north of uh, Kharkov. Some are going down south. Um, others are being held in reserve. Now, to buy time while this is happening, Ukraine has mobilized its territorial defense brigades. And the way territorial defense works is these are reservists who, by law, uh, mobilize to defend their regional area. That means that... Um, you know, they, they put on a uniform in the morning, they go to their respective military units, and then at night they go home to their wives, to their kids, to their families. Um, and what's happening here is that uh, the Ukrainian government is taking these units and sending them to fill gaps in the front line created by the withdrawal and destruction of some of their regular forces. And um, these guys are taking horrific casualties. They're not trained, they're not equipped, they're cannon fodder, um, and they're being slaughtered. Um, and so Ukraine is sacrificing, um, you know, tens of thousands of uh, its poorly trained soldiers to buy time so that it can uh, re-equip uh, some of their, 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 their regular forces. And, uh, you know, this is the danger of what NATO has done here. We, we, the United States and NATO are creating the conditions for uh, the impossibility of the cessation of uh, conflict once Russia accomplishes its phase two objectives, because they will, as Ray said, in the coming days and weeks, Russia will win the war in Donbass. They will accomplish uh, their objective of liberating uh, the Donbass and of creating a viable land bridge connecting Crimea uh, to uh, to the Donbass. Uh, the question now is what happens after that? And it appears the United States is preparing Ukraine to uh, to continue the battle. Thank you very much. We've been talking with uh, Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for, Professionals for Sanity, and Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. He's an author and writer. You can find his stuff all over the net. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The chair of the Disinformation Governance Board has proposed allowing certain Twitter users to police the platform. Also, we discuss the current authoritarian state of West liberalism, President Biden's administration viewed through the context of the Ukrainian conflict, and conservative pushback against the neocon liberal warmongers. For more on these and more and other stories, we turn to Jim Cavanaugh. Jim's a writer at the Polemicist and Counterpunch. Jim, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. And Steve Poikinen, he's a national organizer for Action for Assange and a podcaster of uh, of significant note. Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Garland. It's great to be here. I understand you got some shows on Rockfin, and uh, where are they? What time are they? That kind of stuff. 
That's correct. Um, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. on the West Coast, we have uh, the a.m. wake up. And then every Sunday at 10 a.m. on the West Coast, I have slow news day. And I encourage everyone to go to the Rockfin where they allow us to speak freely and and sign up for your free account. All right. And I'm on Rockfin, too. R-O-K-F-I-N of Rockfin. And I've got a show on Rockfin, too. So uh, make sure you follow Garland Nixon on Rockfin. i got plenty to say, as you may already know. Nina Jankowitz, the director of U.S. President Joe Biden's newly created Disinformation Governance Board, i got to say it like that, guys, Disinformation Governance Board, sounds kind of official, has called for enabling blue check Twitter users to help police commentary on the social media platform by allowing them to edit tweets that they consider to be false or misleading. Shockingly, Jankowitz has a blue check on the platform herself. Let's start with you. The blue check police, Steve Poikinen. I just honestly can't believe that we're at this place right now to where to where we legitimately have the the ministry of truth to where we have the the reject dinner theater you know lead actress is who's in charge of it who has gotten everything wrong over and over and over every time that she has talked she herself is responsible for distributing misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation, which is the new kind of terrible information that we've been subjected to lately. Uh, so it, I, the idea that other people with blue checks that are deemed acceptable arbiters of thought uh, are going to be allowed to go into your Twitter and edit your tweets or correct your tweets or amend your tweets, however they're they're framing it, um, it's, it's not just... I don't know, it's not just unsettling, but, I mean, it's creepy. It's just creepy. Yeah, that's the worst kind. I hate creepy things. You know, um, let me say, throw one thing at you first, Jim. Here's the interesting thing about misinformation that we found, according to Scary Poppins. Misinformation only comes from people outside of the government, and it only opposes the government narrative. The government doesn't put out misinformation ever. That's never considered misinformation. And in fact, if you say, well, you know, the CIA's right on that one, that isn't misinformation. The real key to understanding misinformation, Steve and, and Jim both, is understanding that it can only be information that opposes the government narrative, whether it's true or false. Jim, your thoughts on uh, the Twitter blue check, po- the blue check police? Well, yeah, of course, this is uh, unsustainable. There's no coherence to this notion of disinformation as they're using it. You know, has anybody asked her to defend the, the untruths she said and asked her whether, whether that's not disinformation or not? In fact, that's a little bit what Rand Paul did to Mayorkism uh, at, the, at the hearing, you know, isn't what you were saying disinformation, isn't what Jankovic was saying disinformation. But this business about the editing of tweets, it's a little strange because when you look at, you look at the, her video carefully, you know, she, I, it doesn't seem like she's saying I could actually go in and edit Jim Kavanaugh's tweets. What she's saying is, again, I could put, like, I could add context to it. So it's like people were saying, isn't that Twitter? <laughs> I mean, people can reply to your tweet and add context to it. Now, maybe she's saying uh, authorized blue check people have the right to kind of add labels on behalf of Twitter, like Twitter does, saying this is official you know, Russian government disinformation or something that will appear on the, attached to the tweet for everybody to see. 
But that's kind of crazy, too. Who's going to be able to do that? I mean, this is an unsustainable thing. You know, if she's, if she's actually saying we can go in and edit someone else's tweet, <laughs> they could say something different, that is beyond creepy. And if she's not saying that and saying, oh, we can add context to it by saying something about it, well, what's the difference between that and Twitter now? I mean, I can go on and add context to people's tweets. If there's something else going on, that they're going to monetize Twitter in a, in a different way. In fact, there is now, I don't know if you've noticed this, there's a thing called super follow. Uh, and there are people who are, you, it's like the super commenters on, uh, on, on, on Facebook, uh, super fans. You know, they're setting up this thing where you can pay a little bit more to get more rights to, and, and you, can, you can designate tweets that only super followers can see. So that's something that's going on with, twi- Facebook, uh, with Twitter as a kind of monetization scheme that, that, that's in the, in the background going on here. But her, she doesn't even, not only is she a, 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 wants to censor things, but she doesn't need to even understand how the platform that she wants to manipulate works. There's another article in uh, Politico, Why Biden is in Danger of Replicating Woodrow Wilson's Propaganda Machine. And Steve, here's what I'll say. It's not that he's in danger of possibly doing it. That is the intent. And it is, um, I think, for the same reason. A lot of Americans didn't want to get into World War I, and they couldn't and didn't like being in it, and they couldn't have people running around saying that because it would affect, excuse me, it would expose the public opinion that was already there. Right now, people would prefer to eat then get nuked and i think what we're looking at here is in i think this discussion first of all if you read the article um why biden is in danger of replicating woodrow wilson's propaganda machine it's quite problematic it implies that under some circumstances it would be okay to have this and it implies that the government is an honest actor in the conversations which it ain't but at any rate your thoughts on all of that steve porkinen the fallout from World War One was that we had a, a legitimate anti-war movement for the first time, really, in, in American history. We had the, the Doughboy Army that marched to get compensation. We had Eugene Debs, who got himself locked up under the newly created uh, Espionage and Sedition Act, where uh, merely speaking anti-war words would get you a prison sentence. So the the parallels are um, alarming on a lot of different levels because we're starting to see uh, in the same way that you could bury somebody in a prison cell for a long time, like they're doing with Julian Assange, like they tried to do with Eugene Debs. We're seeing the unpersoning of people from the digital space where they're, you know, basically like the the last frontier, the last public square where people are allowed to, to speak their mind and share information. And the removal of people from that space, the censoring of them from that element is, I don't know, in a lot of ways, it's even worse than uh, than what we've experienced so far. You know, Jim, the last paragraph says this. The Department of Homeland Security have a, has a lot of work to do before this disinformation governance board can seem like a remotely good idea. Congress would be well advised to press Mayorkas to clarify the role of the DGB both now and going forward. Here's the reality. That's a fraud. We already know the role. The role is to squash dissent of the empire. So even they, that discussion here gives, the, uh, cr- gives credence to the argument that there are some circumstances circumstances in which this could viably be be used to stop disinformation. The fact of the matter is the empire is in trouble and it must squash dissent. Jim Cavanaugh. 
Yeah, well, that's that's the crux of the matter, exactly. You put your finger on it. This is about that. This is about, you know, creating a, 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 media inf- a media landscape and an information landscape where the narrative that's going to allow us to go, go to war and going to manufacture consent for, the, for war is unimpeded. That's what it's about. It was about in World War I. It's, I'm very glad to see this, this analogy being made. At least there are problems with some of the underlying assumptions of this, but it was an interesting analogy, and it's a very good point. You know, and it was this, the, the moment when the, the Espionage Act that Julian Assange is going to be put in jail for was passed. It was the moment when Eugene Zed, Eugene Zed was sent to prison for free speech, and the famous uh, no, no saying that you can't shout fire in a crowded theater was about him. <laughs> and and uh, so, you know, uh, it, and it, this is a repeat of that. And don't forget also the fallout from World War One was World War Two. <laughs> yeah. So, so we're we're in a situation where the where the war state, and we're really in. Uh, uh, every that's incredible to me that everybody, Republican, Congressman, Democratic, we're at war. This is a proxy war with Russia. There's no way we can stop this until we win, win, win. And that the United States, American citizens haven't didn't want that. Don't want it. You know they don't want to go to war with Russia, and they have to control. What, what is now the source of independent media, which is the social media platforms that were the promise of having soapboxes and uh, fora that everybody could have participated in equally. And they, they got to cut that off. They have the other media dominated by six billionaire companies. And they don't want this getting out of hand, which it does get out of hand. It gives them this space there for independent Americans, this space there for voices from other countries. And they want to shut that down, and that's what this disinformation governance board is about, and that's the crux of the matter. And they can't say it out loud. They can't say it specifically, which is why their answers to the questions about it are always ridiculous and have these you know, amorphous concepts in them that can't be defined. Danny Haifong in Black Agenda Reports, one of my favorite websites, writes, The Road to Hell brought to you by liberalism. Elon Musk's purchase of the Twitter platform was a hotly debated topic, but neither Musk nor any other individual is the root of the world's problem. Liberalism, which pretends to oppose capitalism and U.S. state hegemony, which is in fact an ally, is the problem. Steve Poikin in, I'm a lefty. I'm a real lefty. And nobody screams louder. Yeah, that's it. Those ultra liberals are a bunch of darn fascists. Fascists. Nobody screams that louder than me. Your thoughts, Steve Poikin in. Well, I mean, that's that's fair. And I don't understand where I don't, I don't necessarily see where liberalism itself was a uh, an antagonist to capitalism. I've always seen liberalism uh, as sort of the uh, um, I don't know, the more subtle approach to how to bomb people and take their resources. Um, however, I mean, I, I respect Danny's point, and I like him as a writer. It, what we have really, at least in terms of our foreign policy, and at least in terms of who's currently running the show, is a bunch of dyed-in-the-wool neocons. We, we've got the whole, like, Bill Crystal Heritage Foundation National Review think tank organization that is calling most of the plays, not just in Ukraine, but currently in Syria, down in AFRICOM. It, it is, I guess, neoconservatism under the guise of liberalism that is really running rampant over everybody right now. 
Jim, what do you think about my assertions that what we're looking at when we use terms like neoconservatism, it's fascism, that if ultranationalism is fascism, this ultraliberalism is a form of fascism in that fascism borrows rhetoric from anywhere. It'll borrow rhetoric from the far left when they're for the people, socialists, whatever. It'll borrow it from the far right, from populism, whatever. And since fascism borrows rhetoric from anywhere it needs to con- to convince people, but does the same thing, military expansionism, totalitarianism at home. Clearly, to me, the ide- the ruling ideology in the United States is doing that. So I don't care what we call it. It's a, I call it an ultra-liberalism. Jim, am I wrong in calling this pure fascism? No, I would disagree with you about that. You know, I, I, I've always been reluctant to use the word fascism. Uh, I, I think, you know, you have to, there's a very particular Hitlerian sense of that, that the strongest sense. And it, people have been too... Uh, too quick to say, oh, so-and-so is a fascist or fascist adjacent. You know, I wrote an article about Antifa and free speech, and, and uh, you know, and I was saying at the time, three years ago, or maybe five years ago, uh, that, you know, if Antifa really was trying to prevent the speech of fascist adjacent politicians, they would be at the uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama's speeches. They would be trying to prevent them from speaking because Hillary Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, and Joe, Joe Biden put fascists in, real fascists into power in Ukraine. And there is a difference between uh, what we call conservatism and certainly neoconservatism is a particular thing that started with, with the Democratic Party, with Henry Jackson, uh, the senator from Washington, I think, and, and, and his group. And it was based on really a very strong Zionist forward sense of American foreign policy. The United States had to be the most powerful country in the world to protect Israel. <laughs> and that's a lot of what's always been behind neoconservatives. It's, it's dumb. It's, it's morphed in other directions, but it's definitely American exceptionalism. We must be the dominant power in the world. Since the demise of the Soviet Union in 1991, we can't not allow any other power, even regionally, to, to, uh, to come to prom- dominance. So, you know, I just shy away from using it. We have real, real fascists in Ukraine that you can look at and say, and I think that's part of the problem. I think part of the problem historically is that liberals who I agree with Danny are, are not anti-capitalist, you know, have been, were, were, you know, the, the, the modern post-war liberalism as a political thing was always something anti-communist and uh, pro-capitalist. And in various countries, the liberals, uh, ally with fascists when they need to, when they, when they can't get done what they want to, want to get done through various soft ideological measures. And that's one of the things that's happening now, that we're seeing a liberalism ally with fascism. But I would like to keep a distinction between those notions. A lot of good points. Let me ask you, Steve, I'm going to throw this back to you because I think this is an important conversation. You know, when you look at the people, the Pinochets that we put in power that were fat, any number of people that the U.S. uh, put in power uh, in the distant parts of its empire that were pure fascists, where the U.S. took out someone who was maybe a socialist or a lefty and inserted an avowed fascist. When you look at the fact that the people that, I mean, we got goose-stepping, swastika-tattooed, this is a real deal fascist that we are arming right now. When you look at the Democratic Party and the people that are controlling it, the Max Boots of the world, Victoria Nuland was Dick Cheney's assistant. When you look at the people who have the reins, 
via the Democratic Party on um, U.S. foreign policy right now and what they're doing. My God, they want to start a war with China and Russia and everybody else. Let me ask you this, Steve. Do you think I'm over – keeping in mind that I believe this, there are different strains of fascism. Jim made a lot of points. Let me ask you this, Steve. Do you think I'm over the top arguing that this is a form of fascism? If we're going to take fascism in the strictest sense of the word, the the earliest possible definition, the original form, the marriage of the corporation and the state, the United States has been operating under that for decades. What what we've seen in the expansion of the empire and in the post 9-11 world is this sort of um, fascism by proxy war where we go in with either economic hitmen um, and destabilize the country and then um, behind the scenes prop up some sort of, of fascist or quasi-fascist dictator <clears throat> as opposed to blatantly going in, boots on the ground, overthrowing someone, although we kind of did that in uh, uh, Bolivia. And that woman is currently about to go to uh, court and go to trial. Uh, for what she did in that coup, um, the I I don't personally think you're overreaching. However, I'm one of those people that uh, does not believe the state should exist at all. So I, it does all more or less look like varying strains of fascism once you get past a a representative republic. Something very important. The new it's from antiwar.com. New York Times shifts pro-war narrative documents failure of U.S. in Ukraine. The Times says that things are not going well for the U.S. and its man in Kiev, Volodymyr Zelensky. It tells us that, and uh, anti-war says, it tells us that some truths have gone from uncomfortable to undeniable. Such was the nature of the story on page one, headlined May 11th, Russians hold much of the East setbacks aside. A couple of things I'll throw out to you, Jim. Number one, um, I've been reading lately that some of the titans of industry in Germany are unhappy and they basically said we need to fix this thing because if we get our gas cut off, Germany's um, economy will contract by 12 percent in the first year. And that's probably conservative. I'm hearing that Mario Draghi has said to Biden, we need to find some kind of an end to this. The bottom line is this is Europe's economy and ours eventually. But in the immediate immediacy, Europe's economy is going to be just a pile of smoldering ashes. Your thought on The New York Times actually, God forbid, I know you can get fired for this at the New York Times, but telling the truth, Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, it's an interesting piece. Uh, clearly, there are some people who are aware and trying to warn some sectors of the ruling hegemonic ideological elite are trying to say, look, we got to think carefully about this. This is very, very dangerous. As you say, and as businessmen know, this is going to be, it is destroying economies. It's going to destroy European economies, first of all, and it's going to be a disaster. And this is the way the neoconservatives are really, you know, extremists in the exact sense of the word. They don't really care about that. They want, they want to rule the world. They want to make sure we, we have established who rules the world. And that's exactly what the Russians want to change. And exactly what is going to change because it will change if it has to by the virtue of these collapsing economies. So, uh, yeah, this is a, a, an interesting thing to see. They're acknowledging that the, narr- the, the narrative they and everybody else in the Western media has been presenting about what's going on in Ukraine is phony. Ukraine isn't winning the war. Russia is 
methodically establishing itself in the way it wants to and winning the battles it needs to. You know, there are things that it's very hard to determine day by day who's had a success in what particular uh, element of the conflict. But it's clear that Russia has you know, methodically done its job. And we have to make sure, understand it. And we have to admit that. And really, do we want to go into nuclear war with Russia? Are we going to pursue this to the end? Really? Because that's what the end would be. To make sure Russia loses, how can we possibly do that? Ukraine is not going to defeat Russia by itself. Just not, even the weapons we give them. So that's, it's good to see them kind of waking up to that. But, you know, still at this moment, it seems to me that that is definitely a minority opinion. It's something they're going to give voice to once in a while. But the dominant discourse in Washington now seems to be the Russians are losing. And that's why we should keep this war going. Stephen, let me throw this in there. Here's what I see. At the beginning, it was unanimous. Oh, we've, we're in for a dime, in for a dollar. Oh, the Russians are winning. They're, you know, taking the, uh, uh, excuse me, the Ukrainians are winning. They're taking the Russians out easily. Oh, they're really, really tough. And it, uh, here's the way I would look at, at it. We're 60, 70 days in, which isn't a long time. And they're starting to get some cracks in the armor. And some people are starting to say, ah, this is, I got investment in Mercedes-Benz and Siemens. I'm going to lose every dime of it. At any rate, your thoughts, Steve Poikinen? Well, I mean, eventually somebody's, somebody's got to settle the tab, right? And the, so I, right now we've got, you know, a bunch of, of drunk, belligerent guys screaming at the bar. But eventually somebody's going to be responsible for the tap. And if Western Europe is cut off from their energy source, if they're, you know, if Germany specifically is going to lose 70, 80% of its energy and there is not enough on reserve for the U S to be able, which there isn't by the way, to step in and say, we can supply all of Western Europe's energy concerns. Through our partners with Saudi Arabia, through the strategic energy reserve, we can do that. They can't. They can't. So when it's time to pay the tab, everyone's going to have to cough up in rubles. That's what it looks like. Yeah. And there, you know what? From the looks of things, Europe has been uh, has been, you know, through colonization, impoverishing the, the global south for many, many centuries in another metaphorical way. Might just be time to pay that tab, too. Uh, not in our name. Conservative journalists plead with Biden to avoid nuclear war with Russia. Your strategy is edging the world closer and closer to a nuclear war, war with, the Russia, with Russia and to another world war. This was from a bunch of a whole bunch of um, conservative journalists. Here's what's interesting, uh, Jim. When I go online, I got more conservatives following me and libertarians than ever. It seems like the liberals are like, yes, world war, let's annihilate all human beings. And the conservatives and like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world are like, ah, not so fast there, Speedy. Uh, interesting dynamic. Start with you, Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, it was horrible for me to read this. Horrible, because this, was, this has sounded like the kinds of things that good-hearted liberals and leftists were writing in the Vietnam War. <laughs> you know, and it's coming now from these were not only the conservatives, these are religious conservatives. This is from a from a religious conservative uh, reactionary of the highest order standpoint, you know, and they are saying good things here. You know, I don't have any objection to this letter. And it's a shame that 
This, the Democratic Party certainly is the war party. I mean, Robert Perry was saying that in 2016, Gwen Greenwald and Robert Perry started saying that. It's clearly the case that since Obama came in, the anti-war movement just was excised from the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was turned into a war and terror party and now to, you know, the war party. It's the biggest war migrant party. And I'm sure and I know that, you know, a lot of these right-wing people who are saying this are using this because they're going to use it to get at Biden electorally, and they think it's going to be an advantage for them electorally, which it will be. But I'm glad to see it. You need to hear it. They're saying things that are true here. And it's just a shame that, that this is what we have in the United States now in terms of political discourse, when right-wing people, whom I abhor on all kinds of levels, uh, are saying things are the anti have the, some kind of anti-war dis, discourse and the certainly the de- liberal Democrats are gung ho for war and for American exceptionalism. Let me read in a, a sentence. At this dangerous moment in history, the U.S. must, ex- must exert its power to become a force for just peace. How evil can these right wingers be? Um, uh, let me ask you. Let me let me throw this out to you, Steve. You do a lot of online media, and you're a lefty like me. Do you find more and more that your audience is like overwhelmingly made up of like either lefty socialists and stuff like that and hippies and things or conservatives, libertarians and right wingers? But there ain't much in between, Steve. So in the first like I've always kind of been been that show for the politically homeless. Uh, the the people who have just been sort of uh, disenfranchised or dispossessed, you know, all across the political spectrum. Steve, the uh, the uh, the, uh, the non-binary political, like the they them and the kind of people of of politics. More like more like every color under the black flag it, it is how I would frame that as like non-violently as possible. Um, but. Uh, but no, it's it. There has been a huge shift over the last several years, and I'm on the the MCSE network, Nico House and Combo Couch, and all those. And that's a dyed in the wool lefty network. And, and there has been a huge shift in the audiences over the last two and a half, three years, from where uh, from where people who approached politics from that traditional anti-war, anti-corporate, you know, anti-pharma, that, that whole, uh, that whole scene, um, have kind of found themselves looking around going, Hey, where'd everybody else go? Why, why does Matt Gates sound like Abby Hoffman? Why, why is Rand Paul to the left of AOC on all of the things that are important to me in the immediate moment right now, regardless of whether I disagree with them down the road? You know, these people are saying the things that I expected the left to to be saying, and they're just not because they're a wholly owned, cynical subsidiary of big pharma, big tech, the World Economic Forum and Raytheon. Jim Cavanaugh is a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. And Steve Poikinen is a national uh, uh, organizer for action for Assange. And where are you on Rockfin again, the name of your shows? Uh, Slow News Day and AM Wake Up. 
And, of course, I'm on Rockfin, too. That's R-O-K-F-I-N. I've got a show, and I just generally run off at the mouth. You've been listening to The Critical, like I do here. <laughs> You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all Monday right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.